Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Impact Agenda podcast, the podcast that aims to redefine and expand the boundaries of a social impact career. I'm Evie, and alongside my co-host, Elise, we are so excited you are joining us in our journey of finding purpose in our professions. Today, we are joined by Christine Kiang. Hi, Christine. We are so excited to welcome you. Christine is a general partner at J2 Ventures. Her career spans the public and private sector, having worked in federal, state, and municipal government, served in leadership roles at high-growth technology companies like Dropbox and Figma, and held investment roles at Bridgewater Associates, Atomic BC, and a single-family office. Christine is a U.S. Department of State Fulbright Scholar Tech Policy Fellow at the Aspen Institute and a member of Schmidt Futures International Strategy Forum. Today, we're going to cover two main topics. First is learning all about Christine starting her career in tech. And then second, how she's morphed into focusing on the intersection of tech and government. So I'm going to start us off with our first question, Christine. So thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. We're so excited (laughs) to talk to you. Um, We would love to just first hear about kind of how your career path started. You talked about how you first, you know, came into Dropbox out of college, but at that time, working in startups wasn't the norm. So we wanted to ask you a little bit more, what kind of gave you the courage to pursue this path? And how were you thinking about careers as you were exiting college? Yeah, um, I'd say the one correction here is I actually joined Dropbox um, after my State Department Fulbright Fellowship. And so believe it or not, like Dropbox um, flew me in to interview in San Francisco from rural Western China. Like, I think it took about, like, I was living in a part of China that, like, wasn't easily accessible. Like, it was not, like, a major uh, Chinese city. And I think it took probably over 48 hours for me to, you know, make it to San Francisco for my interview. And I went straight back because you don't don't really get a ton of time off working for the State Department. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and and I, I I say that because I think I think the contrast kind of helps with some of the decision making when it comes to I think when it comes to career right I I um I'm just somebody who really believe in like rapid prototyping mm-hmm. like my career my life um, I think that it's hard to treat your career like an intellectual exercise right like it's not like, like, it's a little bit like, I'm going to try and try this analogy out, right? Because I know you're both like undergrads at Princeton. Um, it's sort of like when you're shopping, right, for courses. Um, I don't know if you guys have a policy where you can actually like sit in on a class for one or two weeks and have the opportunity to drop, right? Mm-hmm. I, I actually think, like, first of all, I think that's like one of the smartest policies ever, right? Because it kind of allows like students a chance to kind of like make even attending class less of an intellectual exercise like you're going to know by your first or second class if this is a course that you want to invest your time in right if this is sort of a like a community that you want to be a part of um i'm a big believer of actually doing that in other parts of your career um and that was definitely something that i tried to do all throughout you know my time at wellesley where i did my undergrad um and just i think all throughout my career even now Mm, definitely. And so you were working or you were majoring in economics, correct? Correct. Yeah. And right. I also 
but it was it was a liberal arts college and so in addition to econ i took a lot of classes in computer science i took engineering class i cross-registered and took engineering classes at olin college and also mit also philosophy biology i took a lot of different classes like a (laughs) big to the core curriculum (laughs) yeah it seems like a theme is that you know your background is very interdisciplinary and so is your career and so it kind of seems like it is not the typical path to come from being a Fulbright scholar to going into working at a tech startup. So how did you know coming out of that experience that that was an opportunity that you were looking for? And as, you know, other students who may be interested in pursuing many different options, but might not at the time feel like they have those skills or experience, like, do you have any advice? Yeah, I, I think it's less about I think it's less about like getting clarity about where you're going next and more about at least having the confidence to not walk down a path that you didn't enjoy, right? Like, so, so the context behind Fulbright and kind of how it, it, like how it kind of fit into my academic experience was I was an econ major. Um, I was somebody who like was really inspired by Esther Duflo, right? Um, Who's like a very well-known um, development econ- uh, economist, right? She was somebody who um, was able to use economics and randomized control trials to actually pilot like policy solutions in the real world and use those results to actually, you know, improve like programs around health and education and women's rights in India. Um, and so she was somebody that I actually got to meet when I was an undergrad. Um, she like came to Wellesley and gave a talk and really kind of inspired me to actually pick up economics as my major. And a lot of the classes I, that I had then took in economics focused on those issues, right? Like I was really interested in using microeconomics as a tool for um, just improving like the living conditions of people less fortunate um, than us. And that kind of informed like the Fulbright Fellowship, right? Like, and, and the work I wanted to do on behalf of the State Department. Um, you know, China kind of made a lot of sense for me as somebody who is Chinese American. Um, you know, my parents grew up under just very poor circumstances in China. Like they were born in the 1950s. They experienced the Cultural Revolution in China. And so I kind of grew up hearing a lot of stories about rural Western China from my dad, because that was where he lived. And so when I was accepted into the Fulbright China program, it was, I don't know, it was just kind of this once in a lifetime opportunity for me to go back to my roots, um, actually go and spend time um, in, you know, my father's kind of childhood home and also kind of do meaningful work out there, right? Like I wanted to go out there as an economist and I was fortunate that um, there was a university out there that wanted to um, sponsor my work, right? And we worked together to actually run like, randomized control trials that were focused on environmental health and um, and sanitation out in the rural lowest plateau. So um, it was it was amazing. And it was, you know, when I was applying for the Fulbright, I was actually kind of piloting an idea of being an economist uh, or being like an Esther Duflo, right? But like, I think going out there and actually working as an economist full time and working with academics, because I also kind of knew that the type of econ that I wanted to do was going to be fundamentally global, right? Like it wasn't like I wanted to be somebody who spent time out in the field and designed surveys and worked with, um, kind of worked with folks like, like in a different context for me, like I knew that was the type of work I wanted to do. And being able to do that 
full time gave me a lot of clarity. And I mean, I think what I kind of figured out was I think intuitively I was right about a lot of things. I really love working internationally. I love um, being able to work in diverse environments. Um, I loved being able to just live in a city that spoke Chinese. Like it, it, like it was, it was just really fun. Like these were all things that were like so new and novel for me as somebody who grew up um, in the United States. But what I also kind of figured out, and, and it's because I was also publishing papers, right? Like I published two papers, like post Fulbright. I was doing research full time, and I was doing research in a very like collaborative and, and collaborative way. Like I kind of figured out pretty early on that I don't, I didn't think I wanted to do a PhD, yeah. um, and I didn't want to do econ full time. And so, you know, me going to Dropbox and me moving into the tech industry was less about me having the confidence that I would actually go and enjoy working in early stage companies, but me at least getting the clarity by doing the fellowship to know that I at least wasn't ready to go and apply for full-time PhD programs. That makes sense. Thanks, Christine. So if you could kind of recap a little bit for us, what do you think is the impact that individuals such as yourselves can have in choosing the fellowship option after or shortly after college, such as Fulbright? Because I know we're seeing so many fellowship opportunity applications opening right now. And then also too, just a little bit more into why you decided to move into tech and what the Mm -hmm. impact you had at different technology companies is and just how you kind of look at tech as a lens for impact in general. So I think the first question was about um, fellowships fellowships and okay. So I'm a big proponent of students leveraging fellowships, internships, paid and unpaid jobs to basically get clarity on the things that they do or do not like, right? Because that's kind of the main thing. Like, I I actually think a lot about, um, uh, like, what my alternative life path could have looked like if I hadn't done the Fulbright, because Mm -hmm. this is what would have happened. I I studied econ. I loved econ. I, um, I took the GRE my senior year. And so I think I probably could have gone down a path of actually just, I don't know, trying to apply for PhD programs right out of college, right? I'm sure you definitely have classmates who have done that or kind of doing like, you know, one to two years, essentially applying for roles where I would get to do one to two years um, of research domestically, right? And where I I actually think I would have still figured out that I did not want to do econ. (laughs) Like I didn't want to do econ full time, right? And so like, thank goodness that I actually had a chance to leverage the Fulbright to actually pilot like a version of the life I wanted to live, right? And actually kind of go through the experience of that and kind of being honest about things I, the things I liked and didn't like. I also think that being able to actually do econ in a development context, to do econ like outside of Wellesley and outside the United States, right? And actually in a position where I was one of the co-authors, where I actually had a lot of ownership, right? Like it really gave me like a true proxy to kind of what doing this full time would look like. And and kind of really helps like even reveal, at least to me, like my strengths and my weaknesses, right? I realized that I I really enjoyed working in scrappy environments, right? So these are kind of the learnings about myself that actually ended up translating so well into a career in tech and a career in high growth companies. Um, I think what I really loved about being out in rural China was um, I, I kind of liked the ambiguity, like there was a lot of the, the kind of the ambiguity of kind of going into like a new setting and a new environment. Um, I'd like opportunities to kind of build bridges and work collaboratively. Um, and I liked, 
the on, there was this sort of this entrepreneurial nature to the type of work and the research that we were doing out, you know, again, this was back in 2014 in, in rural China, right? Like, like I felt like we were like, as a research team, we were really innovative and we were um, kind of testing out policies that haven't, hadn't been tested before. And we were actually bringing on partners that, you know, had never really, you know, and kind of increasing awareness, right, of the poverty that exists in that region of China. So those those things I really loved. And it was innovative and fun and, and very much actually like a startup. And it was actually like, I think the actual act of publishing and which can be kind of weird and political, right? Like that's kind of its own thing, right? Like that, I think the actual academic work of then trying to get your paper published and, you know, navigating competing interests, right? From a lot of different funders and a lot of like schools and a lot of scholars, right? Kind of the, the nuts and bolts of academia, that part I enjoyed a lot less. And then it was it was a lot harder for me to then imagine a career where I would be part of that community full-time and kind of having to kind of do that for a long time. So it was, you know, this is like, an, again, an example of kind of like, you, I kind of went out, I piloted a version of my life that I thought I wanted and kind of realized I didn't want it. And then, um, and then ended up using that to kind of pivot into um, something really different, which was, you know, working at Dropbox when it was still a startup. Um, I think the leap to Dropbox was it wasn't that far out there because during my senior year, I was already going to hackathons. Um, I actually started the Wellesley Hackathon um, and started kind of getting liberal arts colleges more engaged with the startup community. It definitely wasn't like, I think, you know, Wellesley is like about 20 minutes outside of Boston. My boyfriend at the time went to MIT. And so I think at some of the larger like universities, like schools like MIT, Harvard, Stanford, maybe working at startups seemed a lot more accessible because I think just the fact that they were in like a big city, I don't know, I think recruiting was just easier, right? But like Wellesley's a bit like Princeton, it's out in the suburbs. And so I think fundamentally, like it's just, it was harder for small companies to even reach the student base. Um, and so I wanted to kind of create a hackathon to and leverage that as a way for students to kind of be more entrepreneurial and kind of try to build solutions in a very short period of time. And so I think the act of kind of getting involved in hackathons, and actually I traveled to other schools to participate in their hackathons, got me a lot more interested in tech, even though that wasn't something I um, had ever really considered for myself in undergrad. And so I was really lucky that um, Dropbox at the time, you know, they were they were starting to hire um, fresh grads for the first time ever. I think they had a program called the Dropbox Rotation Program. Um, and it kind of created a path for me to work at Dropbox as somebody with no really relevant or previous work experience and um, and kind of be plugged into an environment where I can learn about different functions of the business. And most importantly, kind of be in an entrepreneurial and innovative environment, right? Like I think, like I didn't, realized that about myself until I kind of went out to China that what I really like the types of ecosystems and environments where I thrive have to be entrepreneurial they have to be innovative and I like ambiguous environments and tech is actually a really really great place um, for fostering some of those skills that you like some of the skills you develop from building in that context definitely I think it's really cool to see how you know, this framework of piloting different experiences of your life is 
actually a really cool framework that I don't think a lot of like college students, at least at Princeton or just like at other schools kind of have, like we think every step needs to be so like planned out and that it's so final. And I think that it's really great to see how you've had this mindset of just like trying things out, seeing if it's right for you. And if it's not, you can always pivot and always do something different. And I don't know why we like when we're at this age, we feel like we don't have that capacity and everything is so set in stone, but it's like really refreshing to hear that you have this kind of view um, and kind of how you've been very intersectional with your experiences educationally, um, but also extracurricularly, and then how that has kind of reinforced your career path. Um, and kind of on the topic of the intersection of tech and government, a experience that you talked about that was really significant was for you was working in the COVID-19 task force within the U.S. Small Business Administration to improve access to the Paycheck Protection Program. Can you please tell us about how you got into this public sector role and why this role is significant for you and kind of tell us a little bit more about then how you came out of tech to go back into more of a service-oriented role? Yeah, um, it, it's so interesting because I like I spent most of my early career in tech and then I went to business school for two years. So I attended Harvard Business School from 2018 until 2020 <laughs> and I graduated into the pandemic. So I was um, probably one of the few people ever to go from business school to <laughs> to working in government. But I think the pandemic was kind of a moment when I think all government agencies needed different skill sets, right? I think typically, I, I think even though I was somebody who's always been interested in obviously like public policy and, and contributing like to civil society, right? And contributing to my local community, I had never considered like going and actually working in government full time because for a long time, I didn't really know what skills I would bring, right? Like in some ways, I, I actually thought like, gosh, like if I wasn't academic or if I was an economist or if I was like a policy person full-time or a lawyer, there are a lot of lawyers in government, um, like I would just go and work in government. But at the time, like I felt like the skills that I built, right, around business operations and product um, and data science, like wasn't really relevant, right? Like I felt, I thought the tech skills wasn't really relevant. And so I didn't, I never really considered it. And what was so interesting about working in government during the pandemic was everything was about like service delivery, right? Like it was a time when government had to innovate again because yeah. the, everything was shut down yet people so desperately needed programs and products and services that only the government could have provide, right? Like it didn't matter where you were at on the political spectrum for the next two years during the pandemic, people, like everybody needed something from the government. And I, like, I, I just felt so grateful. Like, I got, um, I was still, a, so I was still a student um, at HBS when I joined the SBA. So they actually, like, shipped my laptop to the HBS mailroom. <laughs> um, at that point, classes have gone fully remote. So I actually had, like, a lot of time on my hands. And what they really needed was just people who were good with data, right? Like, they needed data analytics. They needed folks who could actually help them figure out where the Paycheck Protection Program loans were going, right? Like you probably remember um, when that program first launched, um, the first tranche of loans going out to small businesses didn't really reach the mom and pop shops, right? Like a lot of the minority owned small businesses, local communities, like they actually weren't able to access the loans. And so there was a big emphasis on kind of bringing people like me into government to kind of help think about the problem in a different way. And um, 
I think one of the biggest impacts that we were able to make was, I think like two things that we were able to do, like one, um, we've really marketed that program. Um, like our team realized that there are a lot of communities that don't trust the government, right? They don't trust a forgivable loan, right? Like what is that, right? And we have to remember that there are a lot of marginalized communities who historically wasn't able to benefit from some of the resources that governments have made, access, you know, made governments have provided, right? And that, and at that even something like banking, right, historically wasn't accessible. And so um, we made, we basically formed strategic partnerships from the SBA. We worked with um, uh, nonprofits that supported the Asian American community, right? So we worked with Gold House to, to do outreach events. We worked with um, different types of entrepreneurs, like streetwear designers. We worked with Joanne Chang, um, who runs Flower Bakery in Boston. Um, we worked with basically a more diverse set of nonprofit founders, sorry, nonprofits and, um, and foundations to try to build trust into communities who have historically not uh, really benefited from any of the SBA's services. And so that was really big, like that marketing push, right? And kind of, oh, actually, yeah, like one of the coolest things we got to do was we worked with um, P. Diddy to launch, like help launch a platform called Our Fair Share. I think the website is still up, ourfairshare.com, right? Yeah. And that's that's really to kind of help build trust within the African-American like business community. Mm -hmm. um, so that's like one, right? And that's very like boots on the ground, right? Like that's not like a lot of kind of like a lot of the ideas and kind of execution really came from working in a scrappier startup environment and, and taking a much more bottoms up approach, right? To outreach and marketing and trust building rather than rather than just kind of using the SBA's existing channels. Um, the other thing that we did that I think really became a game changer for the program was um, we, we needed better technology inside the SBA. And we actually gave, um, we gave every single consumer fintech company, um, the right to, uh, provision F like PPP loans, right? We kind of made the PayPal's and squares and Lendistries and cabbages of the world, like all the, like both the big and small consumer fintech companies, we gave them permission to administer SBA loans because we realized pretty early on that like small business owners might actually have a better like banking relationship with Square and PayPal than a brick and mortar bank, right? Like, like Bank of America. And I think at, like understanding that pretty early on and then bringing these technology partners onto the program made a big difference because we were able to give out over $800 billion of small business loans and you know, while it wasn't, and like ultimately, like it wasn't a perfect program, but we were able to get money into the hands of small business owners. We were able to keep people employed for as much of the pandemic as possible. Mm -hmm. And it would, I don't think it would have happened if we didn't do things fundamentally differently. Yes. I think it's really cool that you took the opportunity. And as you said, I haven't heard of that many MBA grads who go right into government as you did, but I think that's super cool. And Kind of per our discussion so far, what are some of the main takeaways, Christine, that you've had reflecting right now, having worked in both the private and the public sector? Because I think so many people think of them as private versus public sector and, you know, have opinions of which one you can make the most impact in. And I think to us, both have their unique superpowers and their unique challenges. So I'd love to hear your perspective on this. Yeah. Um, so I, I've always been like a believer and a fan of having kind of a multi-sector career, right? Like 
that term was not a thing when I was an undergrad, but it has since become more of a thing. Like I think Harvard Business Review has written an article called being like tri-sector athletes, right? And the need to be able to learn from one sector and be able to apply it into another. And I think, and that's certainly something like I've kind of felt and experienced all throughout my career where I get inspired by different, by the things I get to learn from one domain. And that kind of creates some of the, like when I think about like, if I ever have done, if I've ever done anything that's quote unquote innovative, it, maybe it's just innovative in that context, but it wouldn't have been innovative in a different context, right? So I'll just use the SBA example. Like even some of the things that we've done, like partnering with PayPal or partnering with Square, like I come, I came from the world of consumer software, right? Where tech partnerships, even just using like off the, sh you know, um, out of the box tech, that's not like, I don't think that would have been like super innovative <laughs> if I was still working in Silicon Valley, right? But bringing some of those best practices and learnings or even the ideas into the US Small Business Administration, right? Like that's such, that felt innovative at the time because you're taking one learning, you're essentially taking learnings from a very like innovative, scrappy, you know, tech ecosystem and bringing it into a much more bureaucratic, slower moving one. Um, and so, and like the only way you could ever do that over and over again in your career is if you actually work in different sectors that teach you different things, right? And you sort of, and you're able to kind of synthesize and integrate the learnings from the different sectors and apply it in different ways. Definitely. And I think this theme of kind of using what you learn from different sectors and creating an impact in kind of like using the skills, whether that be technical or just the experience that you've had um, in terms of like relationships or any other kind of learnings and then bring that into becoming an innovative force in another kind of role is something that seems to be very recurrent across your like career. And I think an experience that you specifically also talked about where you were able to do that was being the chief data officer of the city of San Jose. Can you tell us more about the impact of that role in terms of the specific impact that you felt that you made in the role, but also the impact that it had on your career trajectory as well? Well, I'm not in government right now, so <laughs> I, I'm just kidding. No, it, it's definitely, I mean, it's definitely like influenced a lot of the work I do now with J2 Ventures, but um, I think in terms of, I think the impact I was able to make as a chief data officer, I mean, what I really appreciated about that role was I was the first chief data officer for the city of San Jose, right? Like they haven't, they haven't had anyone, um, you know, play that role in the past, which, which I, again, going back to me, me being somebody who just enjoys the ambiguity, right? Like, I actually love that. I actually love that much more than trying to like, comply with like an existing job description. So I actually love the opportunity to kind of help define the role and kind of do it in a way that I felt like could actually make an impact, right? And help improve like city operations. Um, so I think a lot of the work in San Jose was inspired by just my time at Bridgewater, which is a, you know, like a hedge fund um, and my time working as an investor and, and also my time just even just doing business operations right inside of a company. Um, I like one thing I always felt was problematic with government data work is it's very, very reliant on surveys. Um, I think a lot of government decisions are made on um, a small handful of responses, right? And we live in a multi-ethnic democracy and not everybody feels equally empowered or even are able, right, to participate in that type of 
like in, in those formats, right, of giving feedback to the government. Um, so one of the things that we actually kind of shifted away from when we were in San Jose was actually being less reliant on survey data. This was also the pandemic. And so it was also like probably the one the one year where we couldn't just like hire a bunch of people to knock on doors and get the surveys. And so one of the things that we started doing in municipal government was something that's actually quite common in, um, you know, in investing and in the private sector, which is working with administrative data, right? Or just working with the existing data um, around our programs. And so we started running analytics on like 10 years worth of scholarship data, right? So if we were trying to understand if we were like, so historically, if the city was trying to understand um, if we were meeting the full need of childcare, we would probably just hire a nonprofit and go out and try to like, we'll run a survey and get maybe 25 responses, right? And allocate hundreds of millions of dollars based off of like, 25 responses. Um, and that's like pretty common, right? Like that, what I just described is common in a lot of cities, right? Like this isn't, this isn't just the one that I serve. I can never imagine like that being done in the private sector, right? Which just requires a lot more rigor and you, you kind of have to be a lot more customer obsessed with that. And so what we did in the city was we still try to answer the same question, but we began to use a different data source. And so the data source that we used was um, the registration data for anybody who had actually signed up for childcare <laughs> over the last 10 years and taking just raw data that already existed and being able to run pretty comprehensive analytics on it, right? Like we actually built maps of um, of where the folks actually lived, right? Um, everything was anonymized, of course, so no PII, but address data was actually really helpful in terms of helping us understand the distribution of a really, really important program. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So, you know, doing things like that, again, seemed really innovative in the public sector context, right? But like, it, it, it's a it's very much common practice in the private sector. Thanks, Christine. Switching back to the private sector now, and also tangent question, we'd be curious to hear like how you decide to switch between the two. I assume it's kind of like giving you like the ambiguity, whichever opportunity most interests you. Oh, I, I just, by the way, I feel like I still owe you responses for like two, two questions yeah, asked earlier, ask so hopefully that's okay. Questions at a time. Don't worry, don't worry. <laughs> she hits the guest with a three-pronged question. <laughs> it's a challenge. I don't have a master plan. Um, I am attracted to impact. I, um, I think if I can make like a positive difference on an issue I care about, it's pretty hard for me to say no to that right um and so you know in terms of even just working in government during the pandemic like it was pretty hard for me to imagine saying no to especially like a program that means a lot to me right as someone who's the daughter of small business owners i'm a, I'm a first generation immigrant i am raised by a family who has probably never completed um you know a government survey and so i like I think a lot of that personal context also kind of helps. It fuels a lot of my, um, I think it fuels my leadership. It fuels the way I look at problems. And um, it definitely informs like my, you know, my decision to kind of like leave the private sector for a bit and serve in government. Thanks, Christine. Heading into that a little bit further. So, and moving to the present, right now you're raising your own venture fund at J2 Ventures, which is super exciting and 
I think you've been raising that for the past two quarters. And your goal in our last conversation is to bring better technology into the government. So it's really clear, kind of based on your past work, why that matters to you and why you think that's impactful. We'd love to hear a little bit more about kind of your why and your drive to doing this. And also to kind of what high quality tech you would want to invest in in this venture firm that you think could really, this venture fund that you think could apply really well to government. Yeah, so I'm, you know, I'm really excited to join J2 Ventures um, as as a partner in their next fund. Um, J2 is co-founded by a really good friend of mine from business school, Alex Harstrick, who has had a lot of experience buying technology on behalf of the military. Um, J2's focus is around dual use technology, right? So it's any, that's defined as any civilian or consumer technology with government or military applications with the caveat that we don't invest in weapons, we don't invest in anything that hurts people. But we know that in order to give governments like more leverage, right? Like, and, and, and I guess in the process of that, just helping governments like do better, right? Like increase their performance at serving people in every capacity, you have to give them better technology, you have to give them better tools. Um, and so the purpose of J2 is really built around us recognizing that the government is going to be one of the biggest buyers um, of technology, like in the in the immediate future, right? Like we see the government budgets every single year um, and we want to introduce earlier stage companies and potentially even better technology companies to the government um, as part of their like procurement process. Definitely. Um, and I think in terms of like what better tech looks like, I, I, I used a lot of pretty outdated technology when I was in, in government. Um, and so I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't really start with the tech. I would start with, you know, what that agency is trying to accomplish, right? Like when I thought about, um, I'll just go back to the SBA as an example, right? Um, we, like, <laughs> Like the SBA did not have an API for their loan data, right? And so not having an API made it very hard for data scientists to be able to actually track where the Paycheck Protection Program loans were going in real time, right? And and that's mission critical. <laughs> like that's actually very, very critical in terms of like prioritizing outreach, right? And filling the gaps because in that context, right? Like when you think about like, what did it mean for a community to not be able to successfully access that program? It meant that people were actually losing their jobs, right? Because small business employs 99% of workers in this country, right? Like, so this was this was kind of a moment where it's like that real-time data was, was mission critical and not having the API meant that we had to take a much more manual and slower path to getting that data out, right? And so it's less about, do I have like one specific technology and more about like in the process of introducing better tech to government, also trying to changing their principles around the way they buy tech, right? Like hopefully the next time that government agency reevaluates their vendors, APIs become sort of like the bare minimum, right? Like it's almost like a required um, feature where they're buying like any technology related to like data and databases. Um, but, you know, when I think about like dual use, I, I actually think like using the SBA example around partnering with PayPal and partnering with Square, consumer fintechs became dual use overnight, right? Because PayPal continued to serve consumers, but by partnering with government, 
they were able to expand the scope of their business and expand the scope of their impact, right? The SBA historically um, was B2B, right? The SBA never really lent, like they created loan products, but they never really lent it directly to consumers. They actually worked with banks and the banks, like the Bank of America's and the Chase's of the world, they were the ones who were actually delivering the service. The Paycheck Protection Program was the first time um, the SBA ever had to go direct to consumer. And so they had to partner with a PayPal and a Square that actually had experience going D2C, right? Like partnering with a D2C platform actually helped them kind of meet the full potential of the program and actually scale their operations. Definitely. And as you said before, in your past experiences, you want to keep innovating and learning new skills. What are kind of the things you're hoping to learn or innovate on in this new like part of your career? I'm actually really looking forward to like the coaching, the coaching aspect of um, of being an investor, right? Like that's not, I, I, and maybe this is again. I, I I think every VC experience is a little different. I'm I'm new to, I'm new to being a VC, but from what I've experienced, um, what brings me the most like joy and fulfillment for my work right now isn't just finding great tech companies, right? It's it's actually partnering with um, the teams behind the tech companies and and actually coaching them, right? And helping them think through, um, like helping them kind of scale up their culture and helping them kind of set better goals, communicate better, um, kind of like the softer things around building a successful business. I think what's really fun about my world now is I get to meet some really, really smart founders building some amazing technology. But I also know that the tech, like that tech is only really going to be successful, right? If you could actually build kind of the human infrastructure around it. And so, you know, like it's maybe that's kind of like the one through line is it, it doesn't matter if the founder is building a medical device company or if they're building kind of the next like space technology company. What's always top of mind for them is actually kind of scaling their capacity to lead and making sure that essentially kind of like how to kind of create like a culture that's consistent with the core mission of the company, right? And how to kind of scale that as they continue to, as they continue to grow. That's real, that's been really fun. Like I didn't, ex- I actually didn't expect that, right? Like as, as a VC, like when founders reach out to me, I thought they would just like want to talk about <laughs> the tactics of selling the government or um, I don't know, I, or like just talk about the tech, right? Like I, I really thought those would be like the bulk of my like conversations with them as their investor. And instead, I think what's been surprising me is how many times those conversations were actually much more like just around about leadership. Um, and that's that's been really rewarding for me as somebody who has had the opportunity to build and lead teams in a lot of different places in the last 10 years, like to be able to bring some of that in as a coach to these exciting times ahead we're sure you're going to get to do all of that and learn all of that and more christine so we're really excited to follow you in this new venture we'd also love to hear for students who aim to more or less follow your footsteps who want to work at the intersection of tech i don't know i recommend it though a lot of gray hairs from some of these jobs (laughs) we don't see any gray hairs from here christine (laughs) um 
Well, we would love no matter what, any advice for ourselves and students who may want to work at some sort of intersection between tech and the public sector, kind of what are the different paths to take? And we know you're a proponent of, you know, not having one master plan, and we totally agree, but, you know, maybe any paths that you've heard of from friends that also are hit that intersection, but maybe aren't yours, and also any kind of qualities or skills or explorative activities that students can do now to get a better sense of how they can make that happen. Yeah, I think there's actually, man, I wish I could be like an undergrad again, because I, I feel like the environment that your students in is so different from the one like I was in, you know, 10 years ago, right? 10 years ago, I think it was a lot more professional. I think a lot of career paths were quite frankly set front by larger companies and pretty established industries. Um, like I'm pretty sure Wellesley used to have like a pre-law society and I may have been like, I don't think I was a member, but like I got some swag from it, right? But like, but I feel like it's different for you, like you two now. Um, and maybe uh, like this should be like I'm curious, right? Because I I think now it's like working at startups is um definitely more common and more cool. Like I I think it's actually very in vogue now. It's like leave Princeton and go straight into a startup, right? Versus going into banking. Um, I know that for example, like VCs have um I don't know like programs, right? Where you could actually go and like be a VC at dorm room fund, right? And actually essentially do my job as an undergrad. So like things like that already exist and it exists for government and tech as well, right? Um, Chris Kwong from Harvard started um, the US Digital Core program. Um, he and uh, Rachel also started a program called Coding It Forward. And so there are a lot of these um, both government agencies and also nonprofits that are now kind of creating career pathways for younger um, civic technologists to work in different parts in government. Um, I was really lucky to work with some fantastic coding at board fellows when I was chief data officer of San Jose. Yeah, definitely. I think I also it, Princeton fellows too, by the oh, way. Yeah, you did. Yeah, the Princeton Information yeah. Technology yes. Program. CITP, yes. 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 I have two wonderful fellows from there. So I actually think there's a ton, there's a ton of programs, right? That's really a Google search away. So maybe what I would like to uh, advise the students on is it's less about the programs and more about kind of what you're trying to get. Like, like I would actually start with your goal, start with the, like, start with the impact you're trying to make, start with um, kind of like the questions, right. That are, that you find interesting and then kind of move back from there. Right. Because working in government, there's so many different ways you can contribute, right? Like you can go in as a very technical expert. You can go in as more of a um, operations generalist. You can go in as a policy, you know, as a policy person. There's so many different ways you can actually serve the public context. And so the, I actually think the best way to start is, like I would actually just start with an issue or policy area that really fascinates you, right? And just not be pigeonholed into um like there's so many different ways you can make an impact on the things you care about and kind of keeping like essentially keeping an open mind right to how how to go about it definitely thank you christine for coming to the end of our podcast here and so we wanted to just ask a last question so for our listeners are there two or three things that you would like us to take away as lessons from your journey integrating your passion and impact into your career okay I actually said, like on my last day as um, 
as CDO, like I, I had a chance to kind of say goodbye to my team and um, especially like the younger folks on my team. And I uh, like, I, I kind of like said this thing that I think has inf informs a lot of like my own values and my standards, but it's just really around like not being complacent and just kind of having like setting high standards for yourself and things you work on, right? And so uh, when I, when I, uh, I hate the term, I need to find a new way of like, like framing not being complacent, right? So like, like what I mean by this is like one thing I really appreciated about working in tech, I think especially like at a high, like a high performing startups was I really loved the iterative nature like of the work and how we were always striving for improvement, right? Like, like there was something about like working in a high growth company where, and the data kind of helps at least like see, help you at least see some of that improvement, right? Because not having data, you're operating in the blind. Right? Um, and so I remember like, like when I was at Dropbox, like there was just such a um, culture around like designing kind of beautiful and easy to use product, right? We were absolutely obsessed with our customers and, um, and we really kind of held ourselves to the highest standards in terms of like, building that product and delivering the best possible service like to our customers. Like it didn't really matter if like which part of the company you were in, right? Like we were very, we held, we just had very, very high standards for the work. And I think that was one of the reasons why the product was so good and so easy to use. Um, and that, I think that experience has really kind of set a foundation for everything else I do, whether it's at the SBA or in municipal government, or even in class where when I talk about not being complacent, maybe, it's really about always aiming higher, right? It's always aiming higher. And even if you're in an environment where, like when you're in an environment where you kind of look around and you know things could actually be better, right? Like having the audacity to actually be a part of that change, right? And again, there's a lot of different ways you could do that, right? But it's it's not like just making sure that you don't kind of get, like become apathetic, right? By By the, you know, by feelings of disappointment, right? And actually just trying to do something about it. Um, I definitely know that that energy is sorely, sorely needed in government, but I'm sure in other places as well. Thanks, Christine. We've had so much fun chatting with you yet again this time for the podcast. So thank you for taking the time and sharing all about what you've been up to and what you're going to be working on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Happy Friday. Happy, Happy Friday. Friday.